Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, do you really know the Bible? I mean, be honest. This is a huge book. Actually, a collection of books, as you know. It comes from a different millennium, a different culture, when all sorts of different world events were going on that are foreign to us. So how do you get your mind around the Bible? And as, as you know, we spent a lot of time here giving evidence that the Bible is God's word. But do we really know God's word as well as we should in order to know God, make him known and orient our lives according to it? Well, to be honest, it's really hard to get your mind around the Bible, even if you've been studying it for 30 years like I have. Well, I just came across a book written by Dr. Skip Heitzig. Many of you know who Skip is because he is the pastor of Calvary Church in Albuquerque. It's a it's a Calvary Chapel. He's been out there for decades, and I had the privilege of going to his church and speaking there along with Elisa Childers just about uh, a month and a half or so ago, and Skip gave me this book, and I love this book. It's called The Bible from 30,000 Feet. And uh, if you want to get your mind around the Bible in one year, you can all, obviously you can read the Bible and you should, but you should also read this great book. It's been out for about six years. It's called The Bible from 30,000 Feet, Soaring Through the Scriptures in One Year from Genesis to Revelation. The great Skip Heitzig is with us. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Skip, why did you decide to write this? I mean, I've, I've been reading through it. I, I've I've skipped around a little bit, but I, I've been going through it orderly as well. I'm into like Second Samuel now. Um, uh, how? Why did you decide to write this, and how long did it take? Well, it took. For, I'll answer the second question first. It uh -huh. took me about a year to write this book. Actually, it took me a couple of years because, first of all, I wanted to teach the Bible from thirty thousand feet. So I've been pastoring here for uh, decades. I pastored for a short stint out in Southern California, and I come from a history of Bible teaching. Calvary Chapel is a Bible teaching yeah. organization. But what I notice is that when I, when I, and I still do, I teach verse by verse through the Bible. It takes me 11, 12, 13 years to do Genesis to Revelation uh, that way. So by the time you get a little bit of the way in, you have forgotten what's behind you. And so to orient yourself and to see the big landmarks, I found was increasingly more difficult. So I thought, what if I could teach one book of the Bible at one setting and then do that again with the next book of the Bible and the next and do it in not 11, 12 years, but in one year? So it was just a concept that I had. And it was wildly successful. People really wanted to get the overall picture of the Bible. You know what it's like? Um, it's like when you see the Grand Canyon, it's so impressive to be right up close. But it's equally impressive to fly over it in a jet aircraft and see the magnitude of it. 
and see where the rims begin and where it's oriented with Flagstaff and the rest of the desert out there in the mountains. So I find that the Bible can be like that. It can be daunting. And sometimes we just are looking at the trees and not the whole forest. And it's helpful to do both. So I wrote the book, first of all, to get people into the Bible, Frank. Um, it's an astonishingly low number of church-going people that actually read the Bible daily, 19% mm-hmm. of churchgoers read the Bible every day. So I wanted to help at least counteract that a bit. Well, this book does it, and it's wonderfully laid out. In fact, each book kind of has what you call a flight plan in here, right. uh, each chapter. And each chapter, so there's going to be, what, 66 chapters, I suppose, right. uh, covers a, a different chapter, or a diff- I should say a different book of the Bible. What is the flight plan that you have in here? What's that all so- about? So that's an acronym, and we Uh use that because it's the Bible from 30,000 feet. We're using parlance that a pilot would use. That's cruising altitude. So the F uh, stands for facts. What are the basic facts about this book? Who wrote it? Why was it written? When was it written? That's the F. The L are landmarks. So um, the major themes that this book tackles versus another book. The I is the itinerary. So that's sort of like the outline of the book. I break it up and and show you the the grand scheme. The G in flight is gospel. Jesus shows up in every book of the Bible somehow. And then H is history. What a little bit of historical context for each of the books. And then finally T, uh, those are the tips or the travel tips. How do I apply what I just read or what I found out to my life personally? It's really good. In fact, let me just give our, our listeners and watchers a, a section of it. Uh, the the G, which stands for gospel, in Deuteronomy, Skip, you say this, Deuteronomy is the book that Jesus Christ quoted most often while on earth. The scarlet thread of redemption is most obvious in a prediction Moses made. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. That's Deuteronomy 18.15. Prophet is capitalized because translators believe it refers to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Lord said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to to, uh, all that, I command him. In that sense, Moses was a type of Christ, and Christ fulfilled the Mosaic ideal, which is John one twenty one. you reference here. So you are pointing out that Jesus is in some way a part of every book of the Bible. By the way, uh, no extra charge for this, friends, but I'm going to ask Skip to tell us what a type is. What's a type of Christ? It's a picture. It's a, it's a description. It's an anticipatory um, idea. It points to Christ. So you have, um, you you know, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. So, well, how do they testify? Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, he's taken a walk with a couple of his disciples, and it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he spoke to them all the things concerning himself. So, that must mean that there's plenty of scriptures in the prophets and in the law that speak of Jesus and in the Psalms. So um, he's pointing to things like the, um, the, the Genesis 3 passage, you know, the proto-evangelium, that I'm going to send the seed of the woman who is eventually going to destroy the head of the serpent. And that sort of sets in motion that scarlet thread of redemption that can be traced through every book all the way to the end. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing when you see all the types of Christ throughout the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. In, in fact, 
that's a question I have because a lot of people, you know, we, I, we rightfully, okay, here's the Old Testament, here's the New Testament, but you point out that these are integrated. How so? Um, it was Augustine who said, the new is in the old concealed. The new, uh, the old is in the new revealed. He made the mm. point that the Old Testament anticipates the new covenant, predicts the new covenant, um, gives types of the new covenant. Finally, when you get to the New Testament, this is why the, 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 the Jewish person needs to read the New Testament because it is the fulfillment of the promise. You've got all these promises. If you don't find out how God fulfilled them, you're left in the dark. So, mm. um, one points forward, one points backward, and thus they integrate. They're, they're seamlessly integrated. And uh, you'll learn a lot by reading The Bible from 30,000 Feet by Dr. Skip Heitzig. And by the way, there's also a uh, workbook that goes with this. Are there videos too, Skip? Yeah, you can go online. There is The Bible from 30,000 Feet on our website. And I think it's a standalone website as well. So you can get the, you can get the lectures. Also, I'll, I'll, I'll add this to it. There's one for kids called Soaring Through the Bible. Oh, it's beautiful. for tweens. It's for it's if you want to tuck your kids in at night and give them some kind of basis for believing the Bible. Why why do mom and dad carry that Bible around? Here's why. And so we 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 take what we did in the Bible from thirty thousand feet, make it much more accessible for kids to give them a hunger and a thirst. You know, there's a great story about the Arabs and how they give their kids a taste. How they they start integrating the taste buds after the break. I'll tell you what what that's all about what a pro he's done radio before check that out the great skip heitzig and soaring through the bible you'll want to get too in fact if you're an adult you'll probably want to read that you'll learn a lot just by reading that we're talking to dr skip heitzig you need to get the book the bible from thirty thousand feet much more right after the break don't go anywhere Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, 180 stations around the country. My guest today is Dr. Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church out there in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a great church. He's been there for several decades, teaching through the Bible verse by verse, and he thought, you know, I ought to give them an overview of the Bible, and that's what the Bible from 30,000 feet does. I'm going to get back to Skip in just a second. got to mention a couple of things coming up next week. I'm going to, well, if, you, if you're in Tucson this weekend, I'll be at Calvary Chapel, Tucson, uh, doing all the uh, services Saturday night and uh, Sunday morning, and if you are happen to be in Tucson on the 23rd, uh, Lisa Childers and Natasha Crane and I will be doing the Unshaken Conference there, Calvary Chapel, Tucson. And then next week, I'll be at Speculator, New York for the men's uh, conference retreat up there at Camp of the Woods. Details on the website. UNC Wilmington, October 5th. Check that out. Then we have the Steadfast National Conference on Christian Apologetics near Charlotte, North Carolina on the 13th and 14th, and I'll be at First Baptist Rock Hill on the 15th. we got Ohio State on the 19th of October, then a bunch of colleges in Missouri the following week. Auburn as well. Keep an eye on all that on the Cross-Examined website. Look for Frank Turek calendar. Uh, Skip, what was the most surprising thing that you learned in in researching and, and writing this book, The Bible from 30,000 Feet? Um, I don't know that I was greatly surprised by something as much as it, I was, it reinforced to me the, 
the the power of the word of God. That's sort of a that's might be a cheesy way to say it, but more than that, the profundity of it, the depth of it. It's a mm. it's a well. No matter how often you read it, how much you know it, you'll never find the end of it. There's you. There's always more to see, always more to know, always more to apply, because you you would expect an infinite God to be able to pull that off, and He does it quite well. Mm. And so. No matter how long you have studied this book or know it, there you feel like a child every time you. The more you know, the more you realize, the less you know. Yeah, that's right. You do going through this. There is layer after layer, and yeah. uh, you mentioned uh, the the theme of uh, crushing the serpent's head. Uh, that apparently, I've been listening to some of the guys that, on the Bible Project talking about that lately. That that goes throughout the scriptures. You don't realize it. Uh, right. in, until you peel back a layer after layer. And yeah. uh, so it, it is amazing going through it. Um, yeah. What, in fact, Donald what, Gray Barnhouse wrote a book called The Invisible War based on that idea. That oh, yeah. God announced in Genesis 3 the destruction of Satan ultimately. So you see the history of the counteroffensive um, because with every new revelation progressively, we understand, okay, this person, this Messiah, this chosen one is going to come through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, King David, etc. So you see a concentrated attack on the children of Israel, trying to wipe them out in the wilderness, uh, trying to pin David to the wall and take his life. I mean, and, and you see, as more information is revealed, Satan's counteroffensive to destroy the seed that would destroy him. It's a fascinating book. Mm -hmm. Now, um, this book has been out for about six or so years. It's got great reviews on Amazon. Uh, what kind of response have you gotten personally from it? Enormous response. I yeah. I, I struck a chord because um, uh -huh. it, it, it puts it in bite-sized chunks, Frank, instead of giving them a yeah. fire hose continually for 12 years. It, it breaks it down, and I make people a promise. I, I said, give me a year and I'll give you the Bible. If you give me a year of your time, I will give you what God says in his word. You will understand all the themes of the Bible, what they mean, and how to apply them to your life. And you can do that in a year. You know, if you were to read the Bible straight through, it would only take you 70 hours, but you'd have to read nonstop. Mm. And most people aren't going to do that. So if you break it down, that's about an hour and 20 minutes per week. Well, that's okay. I can do that. And so I, I say, look, give me a little bit of your time each day for a year and you will walk away understanding God a little bit better, but what he said in his word, the revelation of God a whole lot better. What do you think are the areas of the Bible pe people misunderstand the most? Well, I think generally... Most people, even church-going Christians, are pretty biblically illiterate. Mm. Um, I think they kind of walk away with this Sunday school view of God. They know some of the great stories uh, of the Bible, and usually the sensationalized ones, the ones that that um, are are uh, put into cartoon form and and put up on flannel boards in their uh, school. So. They, they don't have a great depth, even of the clarity of the gospel. So mm. this is why I believe in teaching the Bible fundamentally, that that's the job of every pastor is to not make up stuff or try to come up with great slogans that people can applaud to, 
because you and I can never come up with something more profound than what God has already said. We just have to discover what he said, what it means, and how to apply it. And mm. I just think that's most of us live in the shallow uh, parts of the pool and never get to the deep end. Yeah, and it can transform your life when you do get into the deep end. And this book, again, friends, the book is called The Bible from 30,000 Feet, Soaring Through the Scriptures in One Year from Genesis to Revelation. Um, how is the gospel revealed in, say, some of the minor prophets, would you say, Skip? I mean, I, I think people who study the Bible might know a little bit, you know, who Isaiah is talking to, who Jeremiah is talking to. But you ask Obadiah, Amos. You know, who are right. these people? What would you, right. how would they right. reveal they think Amos is a guy who made cookies, right? That's about <laughs> That's it. That's right. Yeah. You know. So, so you, you've got these, these, these men of God that he raised up usually during times of, um, of creeping judgment upon the nation. God predicted that if they're disobedient to him, that he would send them into captivity, right? Deuteronomy 28 and 29. So, you have the split of the kingdom, south and north. You have uh, all bad kings in the north, a few good kings in the south. But God sends a witness. He sends prophets. And the prophets are God's statesmen, spokespeople to the king, to the nation. But with their announcements or, or pronouncements of judgment, there's also laced in that a promise or promises that's Things are going to change, and God's going to bring refreshment, and God has a plan. So there's kind of this double layer of judgment is coming, and you deserve that, but God has a plan beyond that. I mean, even Habakkuk, speak about a minor prophet. Most people don't even know the name Habakkuk or mm -hmm. could say it. So here you have a guy who is complaining to God that he looks around and he doesn't see justice and that the wicked aren't uh, punished and the righteous aren't rewarded. And he starts, you know, coming unglued at God. And God says, well, actually, Habakkuk, I'm working a work in your days. If you really understood it, you know, you, you'd, you'd really come unglued because I'm going to bring against you a nation more wicked than yourself. And I'm going to use them to punish you. And, you know, eventually he comes to grips with this, but he at the end says, even though I don't see any outward fruit in the field or cattle in the barn, I'm going to jump for joy in the Lord because he's given this promise that God has a plan, that history is flowing somewhere, going somewhere. And ensconced in that is the promise of Messiah, right? They understood that. They anticipated that he would come because God said it over and over again. So though they won't all say there's a guy coming, Messiah is his name, Jesus is his name. They're not going to do that, but they have enough truth and they'll make the promise alongside the pronouncement of judgment to keep them going and to encourage the nation. What do you think their understanding was? I know it varies probably prophet to prophet. What was their understanding of salvation, do you think? These these prophets in the Old Testament, did they, I mean, Paul says, okay, the gospel was preached to Abraham and and maybe Abraham knew he was saved by grace through faith. Do you think that was that was known among these prophets? No, I don't think it was known like we know it. Uh -huh. uh, I think I believe that revelation is progressive. That God mm -hmm. was giving them just what they needed at the time. Um, I mean, you know, when Jesus said to his disciples, "In my Father's house there are many mansions," they did not have in mind the New Jerusalem 
with 1500 mile cube coming out of heaven to the earth. They didn't get that. Okay. But now we can look back and get all the revelation because it's now completed and we get a full picture, a big picture. So God didn't do that. He just progressively gave them tidbits and they understood a very limited amount. But, and you know, we know so much more, so we are more responsible for it yes. than, than what they had. But uh, what they did have was based upon the old covenant, was based upon animal sacrifice, but they still knew the, they knew the basic ABCs. All the rudimentary truths were at their grasp, that there's a God who is sovereign. He is outside the time and space continuum, that he requires an accounting, that he has a plan, etc. They They knew the big stuff. And, and they were just given little bits as they go. Yeah. And then when you look at the New Testament, as you mentioned, Augustine said that uh, the New Testament is something that kind of reveals much of the Old Testament. It's sort of like the box top to the cover of a jigsaw puzzle, the, the cover of a jigsaw puzzle. Once you get the New Testament, you go, now I can solve the puzzle in the Old Testament, all these prophecies all over the place. You know, you, you kind of see how they all fit together. And so getting yeah, the big and, picture... And- Go ahead. And yeah. fortunately, we have New Testament writers. We have 27 books in the New Testament, and um, they use a phrase a lot, that it might be fulfilled. Matthew mm. does this especially. So they're always going back and bringing forward what is in the Old Testament into the New Testament. Why? Because their Bible was the Old Testament. Ours is the New and the Old Testament. Theirs was only the Old Testament. So that's what they knew. And so now that they're living in the fulfillment of those promises, they would constantly make reference. That's why the Bible is quoted, the Old Testament is quoted so often in the New, because they want to make the readers understand this has been predicted. This is part of the plan since the beginning. Yes, and there's so much more that you're going to learn in the book. Again, it's called The Bible from 30,000 Feet, Soaring Through the Scriptures in One Year from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, actually, uh, Skip has preached through this book. And uh, if you go back a few years ago, you'll find all of these uh, sermons that he's given, and they can complement the book. Were there 66 sermons, Skip, or what was it? What? Yeah, you know, um, I think when I first did it, I tried to do it in a year. So uh-huh. I would combine like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? I oh, would, all right, yeah. they're, they're simple little books, or I'd yeah. put like 1st and 2nd this together and, and try to squeeze it all into one section. All right, so... Check it out. Just Google the Bible from 30,000 feet. You'll find the website. But you can go to Amazon or wherever you get books and get the Bible from 30,000 feet by Skip Heitzig. H-E-I-T-Z-I-G. And if you're anywhere near Albuquerque, New Mexico, you want to go to Calvary Church. It's a great church. I had the privilege of being there just a couple of months ago. We got a lot more with Dr. Heitzig right after the break. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. You know, when I go speak at uh, different churches or colleges, I sometimes ask the audience, how many people here have had a course in logic, and a formal course? And typically about 5% of the hands go up and I go, here are the homeschoolers, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we don't teach logic in public school anymore. And that's a big problem because we're not teaching kids how to think. We're teaching them what to feel. And that's dangerous because emotions can take you in the wrong directions. Emotion may make life safe or may make life fun, but logic makes life safe. 
And Shanda Fulbright and I have gotten together and created a brand new logic course for as uh, as young as sixth grade. It's called Train Your Brain. It's about to start October 2nd. You want to be a part of it. Uh, go to uh, crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. And then a couple of weeks later, we're going to start a brand new course in Galatians. I'll be your instructor for that. If you take the premium version, I'll be on at least uh, six occasions with you on live Q&A Zoom sessions going through the book of Galatians. And since I have my friend Skip Heitzik here, who wrote the fabulous book, The Bible from 30,000 Feet, let's go over the book of Galatians, Skip, from 30,000 Feet. First of all, give us some facts about the book of Galatians. This is a very important book. Some call it a a, a mini Romans. Well, um, Galatians was written to counteract a movement that was starting in the church, spreading throughout the churches of Galatia. And it was taking people back under an old covenant paradigm after being released into the new covenant freedom. And Paul saw this and wanted to write a, a warning, a polemic in one sense against those who were trying to go in that direction, but keep the the reader rooted in the freedom uh, that the faith in Christ alone can produce. And he saw that they, his word, they were being bewitched. Who has bewitched you, O Galatians? And you've begun in the spirit. You think you can be made perfect in the flesh. So they're getting blowback from a group of people who are trying to drag them back to the old covenant. And Frank, I see this as a trend, even among evangelical Christians. Mm. I love Israel. I've been to Israel 41 times. I used to live on a kibbutz in Israel. I love all things Jewish, but some Christians who aren't even Jewish want to all of a sudden keep the old covenant laws because they feel it makes them more biblical. And they're just, it's like they've ripped Galatians out of the Bible and they want to get back under a bondage of, I have to keep the Sabbath day and I have to eat kosher and I have to do this and that instead of enjoying the freedom that we have in Christ alone. That is such a good insight because I see that as well. And if you look at Galatians chapter two, where Paul basically dope slaps Peter and says, why are you trying to get these New Testament believers to obey the Old Testament ceremonial laws? We're free from that now. And yet they would never invent this, Skip. They would never have one apostle correcting another apostle in the Bible. Right. If they were inventing this. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. This is what I love about the Bible is that kind of honesty. Yeah. You see behind the veil. And when when Paul writes that to Peter, what, what he really had uh, in mind was the duplicity that Peter exhibited. He was one way with a Jewish audience, one way with a Gentile audience. It was the lack of consistency. He was playing both sides. Mm. And so Paul, I love it. He just calls him out on it, just calls him on the carpet and says, you know, you got to live the the, the way you preach. If you're free in Christ, then be free. Be free with Jew and Gentile. Here's what Dr. Heisick says in the section on Galatians from the Bible from 30,000 feet. In Galatians, Paul addressed problems raised by the oppressive theology of certain Jewish legalizers who had caused believers in Galatia, which is really sort of southern Turkey now, mm-hmm. to trade their freedom in Christ for bondage to the law. Skip, can you help our listeners understand the difference between the old and the new covenant? Because I think many Christians have never been taught that there is a difference between the old and the new covenant. In the old covenant, God was approachable, but God was approachable through a very stringent set of parameters. They had to go through a priest. It had to be with blood. 
It had to be uh, through a tabernacle later on the temple. Uh, it was temporary because they had to keep killing animals, keep sacrificing animals. And so God was accepting them, but um, they had to keep certain laws and, and probably to remind them because the law points to our sin. It points to our failure. Christ comes along, dies on the cross, takes the veil that was in the temple, rips it, and, 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 and thereby making the grand statement that you are now free to come into my presence, not on your works or your keeping of the law, but on the finished work of my son once and for all times, you can come and we can have fellowship together. That was monumental. Now, there's a legend that says when the veil was ripped that the Jewish people sewed it back up and, hmm. um, you know, they repaired it. That's what they think they do. So this is, you know, um, unseemly. We have to, there has to be decorum and we got to sew that thing back up. And, and the point that I make in the book is that whatever, whatever God simplifies, we then complicate. So God made it simple by just faith alone in Jesus alone. And we come along and we have to complicate it. Sew the veil back up, make it harder, jump through the hoops. So when the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 13 says, the old covenant is obsolete. What does that mean from a practical perspective for, for Christians today? What's, what's obsolete about the old covenant? What, do, well, what are we free from? Well, the answer is found in the book of Galatians. Paul there says the, the law was a schoolmaster, a tutor. It, it pointed us, just like in the old Greek days where you had a, a pedagogical teacher and one who came along uh, the student and got him going to school, the law points us uh, to Christ. But once we come to Christ, once we come to that school of Jesus Christ, then we don't need the schoolmaster anymore. He backs off. So the law pointed the way to Christ. Christ is what gives us freedom and salvation. So the law has done its job. It's, it's complete. Um, it's the same promise in Jeremiah 31. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the Jewish people. It's not like, well, I'm just going to make a church and this is going to be for them. No, this is for anybody who is my people, any group that's my people, Jew or Gentile. But there he said, I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Israel. And uh, he, you know, the Old Testament anticipated the New Testament. So Paul in Galatians says, therefore, the law has done its job. We don't need the schoolmaster any longer. But does this mean a Christian can live any way he wants, even against laws that the New Testament talks about? Can we just no. spurn the law? So what's that distinction there that we might be missing? We have a relationship. Okay, so it's it's rules versus relationship. In a relationship, you love somebody. It's not because you have to do it. It's because you want to do it. I have a relationship with Christ. I'm his child no matter what. I believe that I'm secure as a believer. I, I don't ever doubt that just because I blow it. God knew that I would blow it. He anticipated that. God knows our frame, the psalmist said. He remembers that we are but dust. But that doesn't mean we live a lawless, antinomian kind of a, of a, of a, of a lifestyle because we have a relationship with God. In fact, the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments, are all reiterated in the New Testament, save one, and that's the Sabbath. Right. And so uh, we, you know, it's still wrong to kill people. It's still wrong to have adultery. So all those laws we keep, but we keep them now for a different reason. It's now a motivation of love, not a motivation of guilt and um, um, uh, legalism that the law held me under. 
A lot of people are confused about that. And this book, The Bible from 30,000 Feet by Skip Heitzig will help you. We're just delving into a little bit of what he says about Galatians. We're having an online course in Galatians that starts in a few weeks. Go to crossexamine.org and uh, click on online courses. You'll see it there in addition to the course on logic. Yeah, in fact, you right here, Skip, this is on page 478. By the way, you get your money's worth with this book. It's about 600 pages, but it's going to take you a year to get through it <laughs> if you read it in the way that Skip suggests you read it. Here's what he says, or you say, Skip. Paul's point was that the gospel of grace won't make you indulgent. It will make you like Jesus, a true servant to others. So when you're in a relationship, you're not following laws out of some sort of uh, onerous drudgery. Oh, I got to do this. It's if you truly love somebody, you'll want to please them. Yes, and I made a promise at my wedding to my wife that I would mm -hmm. love her till death do us part. The longer I, ha I live with her and enjoy our marriage, that motivation doesn't become weaker. It becomes stronger because I'm, I'm in this relationship discovering more about her. And uh, it's more of a joy in the fulfillment of that promise than it ever was before. How do you, you're a pastor, so you're, you have a very difficult job. I would... I'd come up with a new message every week and I'd rather deal with atheists than elders. I'm just being honest. All right. <laughs> but um, outside of that, what do you think is a, a good sort of um, routine a, a, a Christian should get into when it comes to the Bible? I know we always say read the Bible every day, but you, you kind of need to be guided because I've said at the top, this book is it's my it's it's so big and it covers so much time. And it co comes from a culture we don't understand, a time we don't understand. I, what's, a, what's a good way of, of getting your mind around this book? First of all, I'd find a Bible that you can understand and that uh -huh. you'll stick with for a long period of time. Number two, get a real Bible. I mean, uh, I have an iPad here. They're cool, but it's different. When you have a real Bible that you open up and you can feel you know what side of the page certain things are on. The more you spend with that book, you have sort of a geographical layout of it. Right. And I can find things that way. So I would recommend people get a real Bible, get one they can understand and they'll stick with, and then come up with a plan. Come up with a daily plan. You don't have to be so rigid that you beat yourself up if you neglect it one day because you're traveling or whatever, or you do it in the evening instead of the morning. In fact, if you have quiet time in the evening because you're a, a night person, great. Just do something consistently to feed your soul. Um, I like to begin early. I like to begin with uh, 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 chapters through the Bible. Uh, I read them meditatively. Sometimes I'll read a long section. Sometimes I'll read a few verses because I get so caught up in what they're saying and I'm making application as well as um, observation and interpretation that I just got to sort of milk it for all it has. Other times, I'll just kind of go through a large section before something really jumps out. But I just do it methodically. Um, I don't do it legalistically. Um, I suggest people go from Genesis to Revelation, although from time to time, I'll do, uh, I'll do it in sections. Like right now, on Monday, I'm doing the law, the legal books, the first five books of Moses. On, on Tuesday, I'm doing the historical books. Then after that, I'm doing the poetical books. Then I'm doing the prophetical books, and I do that all the way through the Bible, so I'm getting a little different flavor each day and coming back to it each week. 
That's still a method. It's a little bit different, but it just sort of varies it a little bit. We're talking to Dr. Skip Heitzig, the book you need to get. Trust me, it'll help you quite a bit. It's called The Bible from 30,000 Feet, Soaring Through the Scriptures in One Year from Genesis to Revelation. His church is Calvary Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Great church. If you're anywhere near there, you need to go. We're back in two minutes. I think it was John Calvin who wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. And when someone asked him, why didn't he write a commentary on the book of Revelation? He said, I don't get it. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, and look, I I think Calvin got a lot wrong, uh, obviously, because I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not predestined to be. But um, in any event, in the book that Skip wrote called The Bible from 30,000 Feet, of course, there's a section on Revelation, Skip. And uh, you actually have written another book on just the, the fact that you can understand Revelation. Right. Can you kind of give us an overview of Revelation? Yeah, yeah, sure I can. It it divides itself quite easily. Um, you know, the uh, angel that spoke to John was sent mm-hmm. by Jesus, and John was told to write the things which he saw, the things which um, you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will be written after these things. So the book is laid out like that. He writes what he has seen. He sees a vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. He writes the things that are. He writes to seven local churches in Turkey in Asia Minor about certain conditions they were dealing with at the time. Then beginning in chapter 4, it's that interesting little Greek word, metatauta, because he says, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will be metatauta. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, metatauta, after these things, heaven was opened and he was caught up and he sees everything from a different perspective. So the book of Revelation is um, um, a revelation of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, the person of Jesus. He's seen in his resplendent glory, his second coming glory, his powerful glory in chapter 1. He's seen as the um, the ruler of the churches, and then he is seen as the judge of the earth, then he is seen as the returning king. And this is why, you know, when John Calvin and Martin Luther both disparaged Revelation, Martin Luther especially said, Jesus is nowhere to be found in the book of Revelation. When I read that, I thought, Martin, I don't think you've ever read the book of Revelation. Really? You can't. Yeah. You couldn't say that and have a fair reading. Jesus is absolutely all over the place. And so I read the book of Revelation straightforward as like I read any book of the Bible. I believe in a grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. I read Revelation like I would read any book. I don't allegorize it. I don't spiritualize it. I believe 144,000 means 144,000. I believe seven churches means seven churches. I believe two witnesses means two witnesses. Because once you leave that kind of interpretation and say, no, that's spiritual and allegorical, Now the onus is on you to come up with a suitable interpretation. So if 144,000 doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Mm. Yeah, well, if it's a metaphorical interpretation, even a metaphorical interpretation is referring to something literal. The question is, what is that? Yeah. Right. Now, now we do know that the apocalyptic genre is does have some symbology in it, but yes. you've got to you've got to sort of navigate your way through there to figure out what exactly is literal and what is symbology? What, sure. what is the well, symbol applying to? Yeah. yeah, so the symbols speak about literal events. So that's right. the word 
It says John saw and signified. Signified means he laid it out in symbolic language, but the mm -hmm. symbols mean something behind it. So, for instance, the dragon. Okay, well, that's a symbol. Well, we're told what that symbol means. The devil. It it, mm. it 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 tells us who it is. So we have symbols tied to reality. And why symbolism? Because symbolism, um, you know, they're they sort of supersede time and culture. You know, you talk about a book that is written two two millennia ago in a different culture, different languages. Yeah, but the symbols, when you read about things in apocalyptic literature, the symbols are so emotionally moving that no matter where you're from, whether you live in um, uh, uh, the Middle Ages and or you live in the Middle East or you live in Middle America in a modern time, it's going to have an impact that supersedes the culture and the time in which you live. Mm -hmm. The book, the Bible from 30,000 feet, will give you an overview of the book of Revelation. And you have a book on the book of Revelation. What is that one, Skip? It's a commentary on the book of Revelation, right. but it's done in a succinct way. I cover every single chapter. I make no bones about that. It's a very, it's a premillennial approach. Uh -huh. I'm not an amillennialist. I'm not a postmillennialist. I think the it, unless if you read the Bible at face value, you're going to be a premillennialist. Mm -hmm. You'd have to impose um, a college ideal that you picked up on a post or amillennialism into the Bible to come up with that interpretation. But if mm -hmm. you read it at face value, you're going to believe in a literal tribulation, a literal rapture, a literal second coming, a literal millennial kingdom. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned before that um, to whom much is given, much will be required. Uh, that's what Jesus said about the judgment. And I, I, I sometimes make the point to folks, you know, we have more revelation about uh, God, Jesus, his plan than Paul had. I don't think he ever probably saw the book of Revelation. I think right? you're right. And, you're and right. so think about that. We are, we actually have more knowledge about God in terms of written material than Paul had in his day, which is kind of shocking when you think about it. And yeah, that's that a that's a fair point, Frank. That's a fair yeah. point, and it's one that should weigh on us. Yeah, we we have to rightly handle the word of truth, and you do it every week at, at Calvary Church there. Now, let me mention a couple of things that people might not know about you that are fun. Uh, you are, like I am, a Beatle fan. That's and, true. Uh, when I was in your <laughs> office, you have all this, all the all, all these pictures and placards and guitars, and you were in a band. All you know, at one point, you still play on occasion. So how would Paul McCartney answer the question, what is the Bible? Well, if it were actual Paul McCartney, he would uh -huh. probably say, you know, uh, my parents, you know, had a Bible at home, but, you know, we never really read it. We went to church, but, you know, I was, really wasn't into that sort of thing. <laughs> how That's about John what Lennon? Would say. How, what well, would John, John say? John was more, you know, acerbic, you know, and he would say, you know, I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I was just saying it. I'm not saying we're better than Jesus or bigger than Jesus. I just said what I said, and it was wrong or taken as wrong, and now all this. Come on. You, you got to love this. <laughs> that's, that's spot on. Okay, let me ask you, uh, John, uh, is, is Ringo the greatest drummer in the world? He's not even the greatest drummer in our band. 
That's a true story, ladies and gentlemen. That's true. He said that. <laughs> I think he said that when they first came in 64, didn't they? That's <laughs> right. Was, he did. Because yeah, Paul was, was a drummer. Everybody uh-huh. sort of did a little bit of something. And Paul was an actually accomplished drummer. Uh-huh. I think he played it on uh, the Ballad of John and Yoko. I think he played the drums That's on That's right. That. Boy, look at you. You know all these facts. You not only know Bible stuff and apologetics, you know Beatles stuff. You're like all a right. Beatle apologist. All right. So George Harrison. Um, George, he, uh, slurred, George slurred his words. You know, he was more introspective and, you know, he's sort of more brooding and, you know, the shy one. Yes, but Frank Sinatra said his favorite song to sing, maybe of all time, was something. Well, let me let me correct you just a little bit. What okay, he actually said do. is he, his. This is how he put it. He said, "My favorite Lennon McCartney song is something." <laughs> oh no! Which, Did he say which, that? Yeah, which would be a slap to Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was because George Harrison wrote that. Probably his best, other than "Here Comes the Sun." I, I guess those two are kind of vying for that's right they're both great songs now why do you think ringo doesn't get the kind of respect the other three did well first of all he's a drummer and Uh anybody who's a musician know that every band has drummer jokes you know and for a good reason you know there's drum and drummer Right, you've heard you've heard of that movie, right? No, Dr- no, drum and drummer. Oh, oh drum no, and drummer. that's okay. dumb and dumber. I'm no, sorry. Right, guys, yeah, yeah. Sorry, good, good. Right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> All right. So, so they're, they're, they look at there's drummer jokes, and most people look at Ringo as you know he just got the luckiest break in the world. Pete Best was the drummer. He got fired because they had to do a recording at EMI Studio, and so they brought in Ringo. Ringo stayed in the band, and they hit worldwide fame. So, but but he's a very good drummer. And he he's is. a very unique drummer. And what makes him unique is he's a left-handed drummer on a right-handed drum kit. So when he would do fills, they're very unique. Huh. Yeah, and and Paul McCartney told him how to play the drums in a unique way on Ticket to Ride. Wow. Look at you. Again, See? look at Frank Turek, huh? ladies and gentlemen. Uh-huh. So uh, now, how would Ringo answer the question, what is the Bible? Ringo would just go, oh, it's all great. Peace and love, peace and love. (laughs) So uh, you also um, are a bit of an athlete. You you stay in shape, I can see. Well, thank you. I I Uh walk, I I ride bicycles, so I mountain bike and I street bike. Uh And I used to surf, as attested to by the surfboard next to me. Yes, I know. Can you see it? Yeah. I would love to give our, our viewers a tour of your audience, but we can't do that right now. That's okay. I, I, a tour of your office, I should say. And uh, it's it's a it's a wonderful uh, place with just a lot of memorabilia in there. And uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's fun. fun. It's stuff that I've collected over the years, and mm-hmm. I, I just put it out, let people enjoy it. And so, is the surf ever up in Albuquerque? What are you doing in it Albuquerque as we, a surfer? We, so we have a lot of beach, but no ocean. <laughs> but we do have mountains and the mountains are like 10,000, 10 and a half thousand feet. Uh-huh. And so there's skiing here. There's a lot of outdoor activity like that. So when I moved here, I started snowboarding and All snowboarding right. is a lot of fun. It's similar to surfing, a little bit different dynamic, but once you master it, it's, it's a rush. It's pretty fun. Now, again, friends, the book you need to get is The Bible from 30,000 Feet by Skip Heitzig. Skip, where can people find you online? Where, where should they go to listen to your messages? That kind of thing. They can go to skipheitzig.com 
or they can go to calvaryabq.com. Either or is of those it places. Calvaryabq.org. Yeah, calvaryabq.org or skipheitzig.com. And you need to avail yourself of this book, ladies and gentlemen. There's a workbook you can get with it as well. You can see the messages online if you want to just go through it in a year. It's really well done, sir. Really well done. I appreciate it, Frank. I appreciate you and all that you do for the body of Christ. Thanks, brother. I hope to see you again soon. That's Skip Heitzig, ladies and gentlemen. Check out the book, The Bible from 30,000 Feet. Also, check out his messages online, always biblically sound and very applicable to today. So check it out. See you next week, Lord willing.